Welcome everyone to the Bordeaux Blend. My name is Sean Vanderwall, and uh, today we really wanted to kick off something that causes everyone errors in their finances, whether people have $100,000, $100 million, uh, and that's behavioral finance. And today we really wanted to address specifically some of the more prevalent mental roadblocks, emissions, errors uh, that have really led to bad decision-making and, and can't think of a better person to support that conversation uh, today than our guest, John Nersesian, uh, who is the head of advisor education at the $1.8 trillion asset manager PIMCO, uh, providing advanced wealth management and investment consulting education to all of their client advisors, served as, as a board member uh, of the Investments and Wealth Institute for 11 years, a faculty member uh, for the Certified Private Wealth Advisor and Certified Investment Management Analyst Education Programs held at Yale and the University of Chicago. Uh, and then finally seems to have figured out how to reverse the aging process somehow, because John, every time I see you, you're five years younger than you were before, uh, but Sean, welcome to the show. I got bad news for you. I turned 65 yesterday uh, and <laughs> I'm starting to feel it, by the way. I may not look it, but I, I promise you, my body is reminding me of my age. <laughs> well, if I look like you at 65, I think I'll be a happy camper. Okay. But a little bit of context for the conversation today. There was something that we were talking about earlier, uh, and that is a study that was published by JP Morgan last year, basically the 20-year average annualized returns uh, for different asset classes, and then the average investor. Yeah. And compared to areas like the S&P 500, the index was at about 7.5%, as I think most people would expect. Bonds were maybe slightly above 4%. Uh, and I think most people are shocked to hear that the average investor had average annual returns of just 2.9%. Yeah. Now, most people out there, I'm Sure would agree. They don't think they're the average investor, right? They're the exception. They have a slight edge above whatever the average might be. Uh, but in summary, the data just shows that the culprit of that is really market timing. It's behavioral. Um, mm -hmm. We hear that a lot. I'm sure that's not new to most people. But what we wanted to dive into today with John, since this is a big area of expertise for him, is just zooming in on that a little bit closer. It's behavioral, great. What are the layers to that? What are the big issues? Um, and what can people be cognizant of? What should they be cognizant of as they find themselves maybe at, at some of those crossroads? Yeah, great uh, great introduction, Sean. Uh, and, and I love the fact that you referenced the data because I think, I don't know, I think that many of us assume that we're pretty proficient at making intelligent financial choices and that our returns are equal to the market or if not better. After all, we're very successful and we're very proud of our accomplishments and our intellect. Um, and this is not to be critical of those skills, right? I know that you work with very successful, very intelligent clients. So this is not an indictment of their skill set. This is really an observation, which is at the end of the day, markets provide a certain return investors unfortunately tend to underperform and it's not because they've chosen bad investments the vehicles themselves have provided ample opportunity for the returns we need it's our own behaviors that get in the way and in fact there was a great book written by a fellow by the name of carl richards uh carl does a really good job of conveying in a very light-hearted way some of the obstacles that we face as investors uh, some of these roadblocks that lead to these less than optimal decisions and the suboptimal returns that we earn. In fact, he calls that differential that you identified, Sean, he calls it the behavior gap. Mm -hmm. And he attributes it specifically to the behaviors 
of individual investors. I don't know if you happen to catch the last uh, season of Ted Lasso, Sean. I didn't, unfortunately, no. no. Uh, okay, great show. I'm, I, I'm, I suspect that some of your clients may be familiar with the show. But More Ted, of a billions uh, guy. Yeah, he, it's been, <laughs> been pretty popular on Apple TV. Um, Ted refers to um, a particular concept that I think applies here as well. And it's the idea that if it feels uncomfortable while you're doing it, then you're probably doing it right. That successful investing often requires a counterintuitive approach. Adding money to markets after they've gone up, after we get excited, after we feel positive about them, well, that may not necessarily be the optimal time to allocate capital to them. And the reverse is also true. As investors, the market goes down, our psyche gets a little damaged. This is not nearly as much fun. We become discouraged and we wind up abandoning. And so it's that investor behavior, not, not a level of intelligence, not experience, not expertise or access to great investment tools. It's that behavior that contributes to that gap that you've referenced. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not something that you know, ever ceases to exist, no matter how long you've been doing this. I mean, someone that I've usually will dive into anything that he says or publishes is Stanley Druckenmiller, obviously one of the big, uh, you know, most successful investors out there runs uh, Duquesne family office. But um, I, I mean, he was talking about the environment that we find ourselves in now um, yeah. and just saying, look, I don't know. Um, I don't know how to make heads or tails of this. Been doing this for 45 years. Don't quote me on the exact figures, but compounding it's something like 30% or so for uh, the, you know, more or less the duration of his career. Uh, and, and still, you know, you find yourselves constantly at these crossroads. So maybe, John, what would be helpful is just to put together a few frameworks, for example. Maybe we have a scenario where, hey, look, I'm in, in cash today. I want to put that to work. I'm very nervous about what's going on from an economic standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint. Um, the list seems to go on and on. I know those things are ever present, but just help me walk through that a little bit. Okay, so I get it. Uh, and by the way, I happened to see Druckenmiller uh, speaking yesterday at the Bloomberg conference. Uh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah and, and, and you nailed it. He is, uh, despite the fact that he's been so successful, he's also, maybe this leads to his success, he's very humble mm -hmm. in, in admitting that he obviously tries to take a view and a position, uh, you know, given his views on the markets and the economy, but he's also humble enough to admit that he doesn't really know. Um, he uses probabilities. He uses these inputs to position himself as best he can. But as he would readily admit, there are no guarantees. And the reality is, is that we don't really know with any degree of certainty exactly how these bets or how these particular tactics are going to work out. Um, that is the opposite of what we sometimes see among investors. Sometimes, uh, and maybe you've seen this with your clients uh, specifically, Sean, we're guilty of overconfidence. We overestimate our ability to predict the future, to know the unknowable, to, um, to position ourselves, to time the market, to be tactical in a way that might lead to better returns. And unfortunately, the evidence is pretty compelling that despite our best attempts, it doesn't really add value to our outcomes. Um, I, I, I love uh, Druckenmiller's approach. Uh, and I do believe very much that the long-term view that he maintains is the right one. I've got some data to support it, Sean. Mm -hmm. Take a look at this. And, and I get it. Bear market experiences like the one we endured in 2022, they hurt. I mean, they hurt financially, of course, but they hurt emotionally. Um, but we do need to remind ourselves that being a long-term investor increases our odds of success. Here's some data going all the way back to 1950. 
the average bull market from 1950 through the year 2022, the average bull market lasts six years in length, some longer, some shorter, and returns about 280% from beginning to end. Now, the bear markets aren't nearly as much fun, but the good news is that they compile in comparison. The average bear market only lasts 14 months, and the decline on average is 33%. Now, once again, we can't avoid them. We can't predict them. I'm not suggesting that we would even enjoy them. I know that they're painful, but odds are stacked very heavily in our favor if we maintain a long-term perspective. And I think that's what essentially Druckenmiller is referring to, his willingness to allocate capital as intelligently as he can, using these probabilities and using these um, hi historical data points to position himself for success. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know one of the things that we always try and do with people is setting up, you know, really a more tangible investment policy statement. I mean, people can do this yeah. on their own, right? Just taking yourself through the exercise of, look, what are the things that I'm trying to solve for? What is an absolute necessity? What's a nice to have, maybe from an income standpoint and working backwards just into a tangible plan that you can stick to, writing it down helps because anytime you're in not necessarily a state of panic, but you're a little nervous, you're a little bit wary of what's going on, you have a little bit more of a guiding light to help you along the way. Um, but what have you helped advisors with specifically as far as developing uh, a systematic process versus just, hey, my gut feeling or things are going to go down. Maybe I want to reduce my equity exposure. Maybe help us through that that thought process a little bit there. You know, I, I would encourage all of our friends who are joining us today uh, to think back, and I mean this objectively, I do not mean it critically. Think back to when you were particularly convicted about a particular direction. Oh gosh, we're entering a recession. I need to go to cash. Uh, oh, oh gosh, the Fed is going to take action tomorrow. I need to reposition my portfolio. And I want you to ask yourself those hunches, those assumptions, those you know tactical moves that you engaged in did they really help? Were they successful? Uh, or sometimes uh, are they reflective of the fact that we really don't know, that markets don't necessarily behave the way that we expect them to? I, I love um, your reference to policy. I love your reference to some of the other positive things that investors can do, because I very much believe that sometimes as investors, we focus on the things that we can't control. I would love to tell you whether or not Apple is going to outperform Microsoft this year. I'd love to tell you whether or not domestic stocks will do better than or less well than foreign stocks. I, I wish I had the ability to kind of predict those things. And it's not to suggest that I'm not focused on making intelligent choices with my capital. Point is, is I can't control them. So what are the things I can control, Sean? Where should I allocate my time and energies in capacities or functions that are more beneficial to me? Well, you hit on some of them. I can clarify my goals. And I know that if I spend some time with my advisor to think about and identify my goals and the capital required to achieve them and the time frame by which I'd like to accomplish them, I know that that's a positive step. I know that I can control risk in my portfolio. I can't necessarily control returns, but with your help, I know I can control risk through effective diversification tactics. I know I can control costs. And isn't that an interesting concept? <laughs> I work with a great firm like yours, and I very much believe that that opportunity, it doesn't cost me money. It saves me money. My biggest cost as an investor is not the modest fee I pay my advisor for their advice and their partnership. My biggest cost as an investor 
is often the cost of the mistakes I would make without that assistance or help. And so I love your reference to the things that we, you know, maybe should be focusing on. The policy statement is a great one. I mean, I write them all the time. Uh, and the benefit is not the paper. I mean, I know that's the output. After you go through this exercise, you have a document that kind of codifies, if you will, what you're trying to accomplish and how you're going to do it. I think the real benefit is the exercise itself. It's taking some time out to really think about what I'm trying to accomplish, and how I'm going to do it, and what my benchmarks might be, and how I'm going to measure my success, and how I'm going to implement the uh, approach that I've uh, that I've identified. I, I think it's the process of working with my partner to identify the path that we're going to take. It's analogous to taking a road trip. Sean, I could get you're in uh, Menlo Park, or uh, correct? Yep. Okay, Menlo. you're in Menlo Park. I'm sitting here in Chicago today. Mm. I could jump in a car and drive out to meet you. Uh, I know that I will make much better time <laughs> and have a much greater probability of arriving safely if I've got a roadmap to get me from Chicago to California. Right. And that policy right. statement that you reference is the roadmap. Yeah. It doesn't guarantee success, but it certainly increases the probability of it. How much do you revisit that, John? Because, I mean, it, I, we hear varying examples here. I mean, personal preference is one thing. Life changes are another, another that seem intuitive. But I mean, broad changes in, in the market and things like that, because I think there's a strong temptation when things are going poorly to say, oh, my gosh, you know, I need to be more more risk averse. I took on way too much risk when things were going up. But that's the tendency, right? I mean, people are uncomfortable. They sit on the sidelines. Things start going really well. And they go, you know what? I'm comfortable now because things are going up. And inherently, <laughs> they start buying at the top Then things get bad and they, they want to sell at the bottom. I mean, I... It, it pains you to see. Sometimes there's only so much you can do, but we literally, there was someone we were, we were working with um, or that I was working with you know, in a previous lifetime, they were going into COVID, right? And they had this plan that was set in place. They had all these long-term capital gains embedded in the portfolio because they had done well over time. And they, I could not have timed this better myself, but they literally sold everything in the COVID yeah. crash at the bottom, took the capital gains taxes on the nose, and then watched everything go up afterwards. But it's just those things that absolutely pain you to see. Now, I, I love the way that you referenced it, Sean. Um, what you're not suggesting is that investors ignore market volatility and the financial pain that they might be enduring. We're not saying close your eyes, keep your fingers crossed, and hope for the best. That's not what we're advocating. What we are advocating is, wait a minute. In those moments of stress, when we're feeling the temptation to do something, let's check, let's take a time out. Let's double check, if you will, exactly what it is we're trying to accomplish and the methodologies that we've agreed upon. And, and maybe there are valid reasons as to why we might make a slight shift in strategy. I don't know, Sean, if I'm getting ready to retire five years ago, I had a longer runway. If I'm retiring tomorrow, maybe the risk that I was willing to assume previously no longer fits my circumstances. So I get it. Maybe there are reasons to make a slight uh, alteration to the strategy that was originally designed. But I think that what you and I are describing is very different than being reactive to recent trends. Mm -hmm. There's a very strong bias. I mean, there are many that you and I are familiar with and that are covered in some of the work that we've written on or some of the great books that I might recommend. But one of the most compelling biases is known as recency bias. And what it suggests, Sean, is that we don't necessarily look objectively at all the data of all the probabilities of what we're trying to accomplish, our time horizon, et cetera. What we do as investors is we react to what's happening today. 
And if the market has declined, like your hypothetical example of the individual back in March of 2020, market's down this month, COVID's hitting, economy's shutting down, I'm going to react to that. And what we wind up doing, of course, is reacting after the bad event has occurred. And we go to cash and that really hurts. Or we do it in the opposite fashion. After the market achieves an all-time high, after it's being promoted in the newspapers and on TV, that's when we feel more comfortable. Oh my gosh, I guess the markets are pretty safe. I think I'll jump in now. As I mentioned before, successful investing requires often a counterintuitive approach. The data is really compelling. More money goes in after the market has risen and more money comes out after the market has declined. That recency bias, Sean, is probably the greatest contributor to that behavioral gap that you had referenced at the beginning of our talk today. Right. Yeah. And I think something that's helpful too is having, usually in families or couples, right, regardless of, you know, mental capacity or capability or anything like that, usually one spouse ends up taking the driver's seat in the financial realm. Maybe the other person is included in varying degrees, but they usually end up taking the driver's seat. And I think that's one area that gets ignored a lot in behavioral finance generally is just mm -hmm. including both spouses, having people on the same page, because there's always going to be things that come across in life, whether it's, you know, college to pay for, maybe one spouse, you know, wants to get the new vacation home in Tahoe or something like that. Any sort of market volatility might put a damper on those plans. But um, what, what can people do to help the, out some of those exogenous factors? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's other things. But as they uh, think through developing this plan, uh, how is that best done? Yeah, great question. I can answer it a couple of different ways. I can talk about that relationship, if you will, between partners who may have differing views on how to allocate capital or invest. Uh, and then I can also talk about it tactically. What can all investors do to improve their odds of success? So look, husbands and wives, what do they say? Sometimes opposites attract. And so maybe <laughs> I'm more risk tolerant and my spouse is more risk averse. A couple of things that we can do. Number one is we can get a referee in the middle of us. That might be you, Sean. <laughs> you can serve as the referee, not necessarily to take sides, but to help us reconcile, if you will, our differences and maybe come to some points of not differentiation, but points of agreement where maybe there is an approach that satisfies the emotional risk tolerance of both parties. Sometimes uh, what I've seen work very successfully is, wait a minute, we've got a client who is very risk averse and the other who's very you know, willing to accept risk. Maybe what we do is we carve out a piece of the portfolio to give each spouse the opportunity to engage in their own approach to assuming risk and investing capital while maintaining a core portfolio that is designed to provide the financial stability that they need. So there are a couple of different ways to skin that cat. Um, I, I very much believe that one way that we can reduce that emotional response to market volatility is through diversification. Right. Think about it. When do we make our biggest mistakes, Sean? It doesn't happen when things are going smoothly. The biggest mistakes occur during periods of volatility because that's what's emotionally upsetting to us. And so I know that you understand allocation and diversification. I suspect that, you know, many of our friends on the line with us today understand it. But I want to reiterate something that I think is pretty fundamental, but pretty darn important. Diversification is the one free lunch in investing. Every time I diversify, I get all the returns of the various asset classes that I've included in my portfolio. But by doing so, I expose myself to something less than the sum of the weighted risks. 
bottom line without getting too granular. When I diversify, I improve my outcomes. I get the returns and I simultaneously lower my risk. Too often, investors only focus on the first half of that equation. Sean, what should I put my money in? What's going to give me the best return? They don't really think about risk until volatility emerges. And then all of a sudden they realize that they're not comfortable with the approach that they've designed. And so I think that reducing risk, uh, broadly speaking, but particularly for the emotionally uh, concerned investor or maybe the retiree. Let's talk about that for a sec. All right. So I'm about to retire, hypothetically. And by definition, since I'm about to retire, I'm no longer <laughs> getting a paycheck. What does that mean? I'm relying on my portfolio with you to generate an income stream. Now, if the markets are producing an average rate of return with very little volatility, things are probably going to work out okay. But Sean, what happens if I expose myself to a significant drawdown like 2022 or uh, you know other uh, 2008, other bear market experiences? When the market is down substantially, what I'm required to do is liquidate more assets to meet the cash flow need that I have. The market will eventually come back, but I won't because I have less money in my account to benefit from that eventual rebound. So I know it sounds really fundamental, but pay attention to diversification and the benefit that it provides and the fact that it lowers volatility, which can absolutely increase our odds of successful outcomes. Right. And I think people all too often think about diversification just in the context of stocks and bonds. And then we have a year like last year, where those are highly correlated, you get your- Did you, you have know, to bring up 2022, Sean? We were having such a pleasant conversation. I love to rub salt in the wound, John. I'm sorry, but I'll, I'll do it. Anyway, I, I think that was a tough year, but so many people are focused on just those two specific things. Maybe it's an access issue, maybe it's something else. But I mean, there are several other areas for people to look at too, whether it be real estate, obviously in our neck of the woods, we work with you know, a pretty significant population of, of folks that are on the private equity and venture capital side. So there were a number of other asset classes to include, and I do think that helps. We talked about you know, this investment policy statement or having you know, kind of minimum and maximum targets for different asset classes. The inclusion of some of those things can really help smooth those returns over time and having you know, a very specific intent behind each one of the asset classes. Hey, this is my core real estate. It's going to help augment some of the income I get from my bonds. Then, you know, maybe I have a trust set up that's for my kids, for my grandkids. I'm fine taking more risk there and to serve that purpose. Maybe I'm fine with a little bit of a, a longer term exposure to some more risk assets, for example. But I think the intent behind each one is very important. Uh, and as you mentioned, John, even having I know traders do this a lot. I'm not advocating that people become traders necessarily. But something I like is uh, a lot of them keep journals. Hey, I made this decision. Just jot down it takes one minute, two minutes here's why I'm doing this. Here's the date that I did it. You can come back and measure, but I think tying those pieces together can be extraordinarily helpful as it comes to improving your behavior over time as well. John, I love one of the concepts that you've mentioned. It's something that we speak about sometimes. It's really a trick on mental accounting. Okay. So I've got a diversified portfolio with you and I have a variety of different financial goals. Maybe I've got to write a tuition check for my daughter next month. Three years from now, I want to buy a second home in Texas or Florida to avoid those very significant California state income taxes. Maybe 10 years from now, I want to retire. Maybe 20 years from now, I want to fund some sort of charitable goal. So I can look at all my assets in aggregate. Uh, but, but another approach that may be more emotionally satisfying or comfortable to me 
is to immunize specific liabilities. Institutions do it all the time. Institutions have pension funds and they know different people are going to retire at different dates. Insurance companies do it based on the mortality of their policyholders. This is called portfolio immunization. It's matching assets against expected liabilities. So that tuition check that I got to write next month, well, that's not long-term capital. That, that, that's not money that's going to go into a risk asset. That's money that's going to be held aside safely. The, the money that's going to be required in three years to retire with. Well, that's going to have a very different objective. And so I'm really compartmentalizing different buckets in my financial landscape. And by doing so, two things happen. Number one is, I know with a high degree of probability, I'm going to have the money I need when these different events occur in my life. But number two, psychologically, I'm better able to withstand market volatility because I know that you've helped me satisfy those short-term obligations, allowing me to invest long-term capital more productively. Uh, mm -hmm. so I think that works pretty well. Yeah. 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 I would agree. Absolutely. I think one of the areas too, that, that, you know, we come across a lot. I mean, our hope is to really be this for other people, but some people, for whatever reason, they don't want, they don't have an advisor. Um, I think, you know, if we're talking about someone that has a million dollars versus a hundred million, you know, the people that have a hundred million dollars probably have a pretty good peer group network. A lot of people who are CEOs, for example, have kind of a, a small group of folks that get together periodically and they bounce ideas off each other. But I think that function in and of itself, being able to have some objective party, maybe that's a friend, of course, then you need to do your own sort of quality control there, but maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a peer group, and ideally someone that is really trained in this is area to help help you and works with several other clients that may share similar sorts of problems and can help walk through um, some of the decision-making frameworks to arrive at the best possible outcome. Um, but what have you seen on that front? I mean, just as far as, you know, un unbiased parties go, trying to involve them on an ongoing basis. Listen, you referenced the CEO crowd out in California. Let me hold up my mug here. My brother is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company out in California. And, and I bring up that example only because he is a good example. He's really smart and he's really good at what he does, but he needs financial guidance as well. So let's not confuse professional success with financial expertise. Even the best of us uh, require some help along the way. I, I mean, we do it in other facets of life, Sean. I, going to build a house. I'm not going to try to do it on my own. I'm going to hire a, you know, an effective carpent, uh, a contractor. If I've got a medical issue, I'm not going to try to solve it on my own. I'm going to find the very best surgeon or physician to assist me in that manner. And I think the same thing's true when it comes to financial management. I know that I have a much greater probability of managing my emotions, of educating myself. Sean, you've seen it hundreds of times. I might be your client who's going public for the first time or exercising some options for the first time, or inheriting money for the first time, or retiring for the first time. The point I'm making is, it's the first time I've ever experienced one of these events. You've seen it time and time again. And because of those experiences, you can probably share with me some expertise or guidance that I wouldn't necessarily think of. So investors have a choice to make. Look, am I going to be actively involved in the process, or am I going to be more passive or strategic in the process? It's okay to be active as long as you got somebody you can rely upon. And so being actively involved in allocating capital and making financial decisions, that's fine as long as you're not doing it on your own. For others who don't want to be involved with that, maybe you take yourself out of the equation. Uh, in fact, I don't mean this to sound critical, sometimes that's the best thing we can do is to remove ourselves from the day-to-day decision-making and reduce the probability of bad decisions. 
uh, two perfect examples of that. Think about dollar cost averaging in my 401k plan. It happens automatically every two weeks, Sean. <laughs> it doesn't require me to make a conscious choice. I don't have to decide if the market's going up or down. I don't have to decide whether or not I want to invest money in bonds or stocks. It happens automatically. And through the dollar cost averaging methodology, as you well know, I'm buying more units at lower prices and fewer units at higher prices. So automating the investment process for somebody who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable doing it themselves, for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to be actively involved you know, with their advisor, you know, that can be a, a, a successful way to go. Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winner uh, from University of Chicago, I, I teach with him there from time to time. He, he wrote a great book that really um, addresses this. It's called Nudge. Mm -hmm. And it's how we can set up certain defaults, uh, certain um, influences to get us to make decisions that are in our best, uh, best interests. The example that he refers to are school-age children when they go to the cafeteria. Well, they're nudging them to make better choices by putting the fruit and the vegetable at the beginning of the line at eyesight and then saving the candies and the other bad things for hmm. us, saving them to the end of the line. We can do the same thing when it comes to our investment activities. Let's remove those hazardous obstacles or at least, at least automate, if you will, financial uh, tactics or activities that we know are beneficial to our long-term health. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I know you have heard a lot, we hear it all the time, of course, is no one cares about my money as much as I do. And honestly, good. You know, those are the you things that <laughs> emotionally charged decisions that lead to some of the bad behavioral outcomes. So whether, you know, objective counsel of some kind, again, like you said, having something that's very programmatic, a policy, something more tangible in place that is a very good fail safe if you stick to it. I, that's, you know, half the battle is actually getting yourself to stick to the plan itself. But having those things, automating it, makes a huge difference. Oftentimes when we're working with people's kids, that's something we, we try to do a lot, make sure that they are also good stewards of wealth, whether they're looking at inheritance or, you know, they have their own successful financial outcomes and make sure that they're well-educated to handle that well. But it's just doing simple something simple like setting up different savings accounts. So when that cash hits the account, as is the same as you mentioned with your 401k and dollar cost averaging, this amount I'm going to pay myself first, whether that's 30%, 50%, whatever the paycheck amount is, is going to this specific account that is for my saving and investing before I even have the ability to touch that and start paying for, you know, whatever things I want to do, trips, vacations, cars, whatever it is. Um, make sure you just take that out of the equation up front as much as you can. Sean, I, I love your reference to the idea that uh, we uh, care a lot about our money. Uh, and I, I, I second that, that notion that nobody cares as much as the individual who is relying upon that capital to, for their own lifestyle. I, I get it. But caring more about my money doesn't necessarily mean that I'm better equipped to manage it. <laughs> I think right. it's okay to care about it. Right. <laughs> that doesn't necessarily make me good. In fact, maybe, I don't know if I can extend that thought a little bit further, maybe caring about it too much um, maybe that leads to some bad choices. I care so much about my capital that I'm just going to protect it at all costs. Mm -hmm. We call that loss aversion. It's the idea that losses of capital, bad decisions that sometimes lose money within an overall portfolio, those hurt. They, they hurt more than the gains that we achieve through other successful investments. And so that asymmetrical 
emotional response to losses and gains sometimes leads us because we care sometimes leads us to uh, decisions or tactics that are not productive. We, we stay in cash. We avoid volatility. We, uh, we keep our capital under the mattress or in short-term instruments. And while there's probably an, an appropriate allocation to short-term instruments for a variety of financial circumstances, uh, we find that investors do it too often. They, they don't engage in risk assets. They don't understand the probabilities of long-term success. Stop and think about it, Sean. I keep my money in cash. Well, congratulations. I'm not going to lose money. It's not going to go down, but I'm, I've got inflation that I'm dealing with and I've got taxes that I'm dealing with. And the question I'd ask is, is that a path to long-term success? Is it going to, is it going to produce the outcomes I need so that I can do the things in my life that I want to do so I can travel so I can, um, you know, so I can retire so I can give money to charity. Right. Right. Yeah. I, and I wanted to ask you about something specifically, John, we see this a lot here. A lot of folks, you know, that come out of Stanford, their MBAs went to GSB there. Uh, you know, obviously some smart folks that we're working with. One of the things that I think plagues that crowd the most is just paralysis by analysis. They get very deep in the weeds. They're capable of getting deep in the weeds, but maybe it's a recommendation from us. Maybe it's something that, that comes from a friend. They say, Hey, look, I want to take a look at this where, no level of information is almost enough, right? And you have to constantly remind, look, if there's no risk, there's no return, you try and fill in as many gaps as you possibly can within reason. But at the end of the day, that often stops people from making decisions. And then they have this, you know, entrenched remorse when they look back and say, oh my gosh, if I, if I had only done this, but I didn't, how do you, can you square that circle for us? I mean, how do you help people think through scenarios like that? Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's tackle two things that you brought up that I think are pretty relevant. The first of which is this, this concept of risk and uh, what risk means to an individual, how they define it. Is it losing money short term? Oh, I bought Uber at 40 and it's trading at 35. Is that risk? Is that the way I should be measuring risk? Is risk volatility? And I know that we often refer to standard deviation as a measure of risk. But I'm not sure that every individual investor really thinks of risk that way. Maybe risk is running out of money. Risk is not being able to afford to send my kid to school. Risk is not having enough capital to last during my lifetime. Those are the risks, personal risks, that I think we need to be a little bit more attentive to. Keep in mind this very fundamental relationship between risk and reward. Risk is not something to be avoided, right? With risk comes the opportunity to earn higher returns. Right, so I can avoid risk, but I've got to accept a lower return. What I what I think we need to be focused on when it comes to risk is two things. Number one is understanding how much risk we're assuming when we build a portfolio or engage in a particular uh, investment activity. Let's know how much risk we're embracing. I think a lot of investors allocate money to certain vehicles and don't really understand or know what risks they're taking. The second thing is when I do take risks, I want to make sure I'm being paid for it. Otherwise, I'm being ineffective. I'm going long in duration on my fixed income portfolio. I'm moving down in quality in my equity account. I'm uh, sacrificing liquidity with real estate or other private transactions. It's okay if I understand them and the implications. What's not okay is if I don't understand the risks I'm taking or I'm not commensurately compensated for them. Um, you referred to this idea that we sometimes torture information. <laughs> <laughs> there are two ways we make financial decisions, Sean. Uh, one way is called the intuitive method, and that means that we rely on our gut intuition, right? It, it's driven by our feelings. 
We've been there before. We've seen this story before. We react emotionally or based on our feelings to make a decision about a particular opportunity before us. The second way that we can make decisions, and this is maybe reflective of the engineering crowd that you referenced, um, is the reflective system. It's where we gather all the information we can get and we torture it until it screams and we use it in a logical capacity to make what we consider to be an optimal decision. Now, I'm not saying that one method is better than the other, but let's make sure we understand how we're making decisions and why we're making them. If I overthink the strategy, well, I'll never take action. And deciding not to do anything is in and of itself a choice, not necessarily a productive one. Look, I I'm not here to pick on engineers. I went to an engineering <laughs> school. <laughs> so it's not to suggest that engineers by definition or necessity are always guilty of that process. But look, I, I, I get the idea that we want to have access to information. We want to use it logically. We want to use those probabilities to allow us to reach a logical conclusion. But the point of the story is what? Reach a conclusion. Don't spend all your time and energy torturing the data and then use that as an excuse to maintain the status quo. Right. Right. Well, I know that uh, we need to sign off here soon, John, but I think just to recap things here, I want to make sure that we run back through just some actionable ideas for folks so sure. they can walk away with with something that's useful in, in their day to day. So round, round out any areas here that you think I missed. But first and foremost, I think is just sitting down, give yourself some time. And really, whether that's with your spouse or, you know, if they're comfortable with you handling things on their own, just understand what the problems are, what the goals are that you're solving for. Try your best, as you said, if you're a very analytical person to understand the different types of risks that A, you're willing to take on and B, that you're not willing to take on. Try your best to quantify those. Maybe assign, uh, and we often find this helpful, kind of a minimum and maximum range that you're comfortable with for certain types of stocks, for bonds, for other asset classes, if you're involved in those, and really provide uh, yourself with some sort of codified plan to come back to when you need it, and especially so when times are hard. I think that's that's an important thing to underscore is just make this and approach it from the standpoint of, hey, I'm writing this when things are a little bit more difficult, because that's when it's going to matter most. Uh, mm -hmm. And then making sure that there is, you know, some planning work behind the scenes to make sure that, as you stated before, you want to make sure that you're uh, that you're aligned with what your long term obligations and, and short term liabilities are and match those up basically with liquidity and, you know, maybe risk or volatility of the assets um, that you have in the portfolio. What what else would you add to that? To that list. I think you nailed some of the really important ones. Um, I think what many of these concepts come back to is discipline, right? Utilizing disciplined approaches to making decisions as opposed to reacting emotionally. And many of the tactics that you've referenced are intended to instill some discipline. Make sure that you understand what your risk tolerance is. And that's a little bit squishy. Returns I can calculate. Risk is a little bit difficult. It's very idiosyncratic from individual to individual. What you think to be risky may not necessarily align with my view on that, but investors should, could spend or should spend more time really thinking through their own willingness to accept risk and what it means to them. There are a number of questions that we've identified or that we often use to try to elicit that methodology or that outcome. When it comes to discipline, I love the premise of allocation and diversification 
And how about something that has worked over time particularly well? How about rebalancing? Mm -hmm. Rebalancing, Sean, forces us to do what is emotionally difficult, but financially productive. And it is an example of discipline, instilling discipline. What am I doing? I've got a diversified portfolio. Some have done well, some have done less well. And Sean, what you're telling me to do doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> you're asking me to remove capital from those assets that have already done well. Those are the ones I like, Sean. <laughs> and you're asking me to redeploy it into areas that haven't done as well, those that are maybe undervalued. We're bringing my portfolio back into alignment with the original plan that we had developed. What it does is it instills discipline because emotionally, I'm probably not comfortable doing that. Emotionally, I probably want to add more money to those that have already risen in price. Rebalancing provides some guardrails to make sure that I don't fall victim to that emotional response. So yeah. bottom line, discipline. And, and, and I think you hit on some good examples there. Great. Uh, any other resources that you want to highlight for people to mention if they want to hear more from you? Where can they, where can they find you? Yes, yeah, so, uh, uh, Pimco website uh, is easy, and I've written a number of articles on behavioral guidance and you know some of the basic concepts that we've discussed today. Of course, you have access to all those things as well, Sean, so we can make it available through you and your firm. A uh, couple of really good books on the subject. I think I've referenced a couple of them. I'll give you the range. <laughs> at the uh, academic end, if you want to make your head hurt, take a look at Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow from Princeton. He gets into the neurosciences of behavioral finance. And, and so it's a, a deep academic dive into the subject for those who are inclined to go that route. At the other end of the spectrum, maybe the most pedestrian, the most fun, lighthearted reading yeah. is The Behavior Gap that I referred to written by Carl Richards. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of others that I think are you know excellent to read as well. Uh, one is called Nudge by Richard Thaler. And then the other one by Dan Ariely down at Duke is called Predictably Irrational. Mm -hmm. I think all of these are um, very helpful. In, in allowing us to better appreciate something that has up till now been widely ignored in the financial markets. We talk a lot about the tactics, about taxes, about allocations, about returns, about the asset classes. And what we as an industry have ignored up till recently is the role that emotions and, and behavioral bias, the role that that plays in determining our future results. So I'm glad that we've had the chance to chat about that today. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks again for coming on, John. It was a pleasure as always, always enjoy hearing your perspective on everything financial. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. discussion and content provided within this webcast is intended for informational purposes and may not be appropriate for all investors. The information included herein is not based on a particularized financial situation or need and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a forecast, research, investment advice, or a recommendation for any specific PIMCO or other security strategy, product, or service. Fixed income is only one possible portion of an investor's portfolio which can also include equities in other products. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Investors should speak to their financial advisors regarding the investment mix that may be right for them based on their financial situation and other investment objective. Past performance is not a guarantee or a reliable indicator of future results. All investments contain risk and may lose value. 
Investing in the bond market is subject to risks, including market, interest rate, issuer, credit, inflation, and liquidity risk. The values of most bonds and bond strategies are impacted by changes in interest rates. Bonds and bond strategies with longer durations tend to be more sensitive and volatile than those with shorter durations. Bond prices generally fall as interest rates rise and low interest rate environments increase this risk. Reductions in bond counterparty capacity may contribute to decreased market liquidity and increased price volatility. Bond inv investments may be worth more or less than the original cost when redeemed. Equities may decline in value due to both real and perceived general market, economic, and industry conditions. Diversification does not insure against loss. Dollar cost averaging does not insure against a profit or protect against loss in declining markets. There is no guarantee that an investment strategy will work under all market conditions or are suitable for all investors, and each investor should evaluate their own ability to invest long-term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investors should consult their investment professional prior to making an investment decision. PIMCO, as a general matter, provides services to qualified institutions, financial intermediaries, and institutional investors. Individual investors should contact their own financial professional to determine the most appropriate investment options for their financial situation. This material contains the opinions of the manager and such opinions are subject to change without notice. This material has been distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice or a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable but not guaranteed. No part of this material should be reproduced in any form or referred to in any other publication without express written permission. PIMCO is a trademark of Allianz Asset Management of America LLC in the United States and throughout the world.